hey, everyone, while the writer's strike is wrapping up, the Screen Actors Guild is still on strike and negotiating as we record this podcast. So if you want to send your support their way still, go to entertainmentcommunityfund.org and make sure your donation is sent specifically to film and television. This is not a strike fund. It is to help those who are affected by the people who caused the strike in the first place, the greedy executives. We at Renegade Animation and Renegade Pop Culture stand with the Screen Actors Guild and whoever else is on strike right now. With all that said, if you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. Also support our Patreon. That way we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today we have an interesting episode. We've got reviews for Tales from Earthsea, which is our next stop on the Ghibli journey. And part two of My Dad, the Bounty Hunter. Let's get the bad one out of the way first. As much as I like to be positive with these kind of films, like, and not try to join up with the naysayers and negative Nancys of the world, there are very few things that every Ghibli fan can agree on. And that's the fact that Tales from Earthsea was technically considered at the time Ghibli's weakest movie. Directed by Goro Miyazaki in his directorial debut, caught in a pretty rushed production pipeline since originally the author of the book wanted Hayao Miyazaki to direct a film, but Hayao Miyazaki was busy with his polarizing Howl's Moving Castle. Suzuki of Studio Ghibli was like, hey, let's get Goro to direct it. And essentially got told, pick up your favorite story elements from the four Tales from Earthsea books. And we're just going to push them all into one movie. That sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. And to no shock, it was a disaster. A film that was pretty much Ghibli's first critically panned entry in their filmography. While it has gained a sort of small fan base over the years. Until Earwig and the Witch came out, this was considered the low point of the Ghibli library. And it's really obvious to see why. It sucks because because I haven't read the Earthsea books, I can't really say whether or not this works as an adaptation, like as a fan of the books, but I can just kind of tell... By watching this, the pacing of this movie is just kind of all over the place. The problem is that it sets up so much at the beginning. There are dragons fighting one another. There's an illness spreading across the land. There's political intrigue. The main character essentially kills his father and then runs into Jed or the great wizard Sparrowhawk and goes on a journey with him. And then encounters Theru, a young girl who was almost sold as a slave and was going to get brought to a wizard named Cobb by his evil knight and his 
and henchman hair. And you can basically drop half of those plot points because they never come back. It feels like a film that was meant to be a series of films, like one, two, three, four, like all four books at that time. That would make sense. Why not Ghibli not try to make a big epic franchise or something? That's like the one thing they don't do is are sequels. They do maybe little shorts that are non-canon to other books. Like there's a short with the younger sister and a cat bus kitten from My Neighbor Totoro, but that's not part of the Totoro timeline and what have you. Right. But here it's like they wanted to start big and then realized, oh, we don't have the money or the time to do all this because Miyazaki is winding up to do two more movies again at the time before he retires. And then Takahata is too busy working on his magnum opus and what would soon be his last film, The Tales of Princess Kaguya. It's a real shame that this got stuck, quite frankly, the worst case production pipeline possible. Not that it doesn't have its high points or lovely moments, but for a Ghibli film, it falls really flat. And that's shocking to me because I was originally a very big avid defender of this film. I didn't see what the big deal was. But then there was also a reason I never rewatched it after seeing it way back in like 2010, 2012. Is it because the characters just weren't memorable in this adaptation? Yeah, that's the big problem here. The characters are not interesting. I said Arietti's cast might be its most forgettable. At least Arietti is a likable lead. There was potential for a great cast, but due to the jumbled storytelling, the characters fall flat. Aaron is an annoying protagonist. It's very anime. He's like, I did this action, so I I don't care about life. And unfortunately, my actions are catching up to me via this shadowy version of myself that unfortunately is never explained or built upon because the film has no time to actually build upon its themes of life and death. Theru is probably the weakest protagonist of Ghibli's filmography. I am shocked at how annoying and bland she is. It's unfortunate because all of the backstory that that we know about her is told all through exposition, which is like one of the cardinal sins of storytelling. Show, don't tell. Exactly. (laughs) Like I said, there was lost potential with this movie, especially with Sparrowhawk, voiced by the always great Timothy Dalton. He was probably the bright spot of this whole movie, even though he was a very generic mentor, wise man character. I liked his backstory. I liked the possible lore and story potential that he brought. But I'm having a hard time remembering if any of it got solved or if he ever like pushed back against the villains ideologies with his own. It is a shame. And I wish this movie was better because the Earthsea books, they sound really fascinating. 
um, this movie just kind of comes across as like a like a half baked Wikipedia entry with sometimes decent visuals and the music though is great. Yeah, the music is wonderful. It that's because it was composed by Tamiya Terashima. You would know their work from stuff like Heart and Yummy, Plastic Little, Key the Metal Idol, and The Boy Who Saw the Wind, Hero Tales. And then we also have just a nothing female co-lead with Tenar, voiced by Mariska Hargate, who y'all would know from like Law & Order SVU and such. She doesn't leave much of an impression, anything. She's just there because they needed a character to be there. She is just kind of the generic caretaker woman who happens to be the love interest of Sparrowhawk. I don't even believe that. Like, there was no chemistry. Like, this film has an idea of what old fantasy and epic fantasy look like and feel like but not the emotional core to any of that. And that results in probably the other biggest problem with this movie. It's villains. Not that they are bad. Like, the idea of them aren't bad. I mean, you got the typical evil night captain voiced by Cheech Marin, who I also thought did a fun job as the villain, even though his character is just nothing. Outside of the archetype. That's one of the, I guess, one of the saving graces of the English dub is that still one of the later ones from the Disney era. But they cast people who elevated the material just through their own, for the most part, charismatic performances. And then we have Cobb, voiced by probably the best casted actor in this movie in the dub, Willem Dafoe. And Cobb is a frightening villain. He is creepy. He is scary. He's probably one of the most imposing villains out of the Ghibli movies. Mm -hmm. He's just not very interesting. And I hate that we have to keep saying that. But that's a problem because the film, for the first half, sets up all of this stuff. And it feels like it's about to follow through with it. And then it drops half of it by the second half and then by the last third it just becomes generic fantasy stuff and it just doesn't handle any of the themes of like dealing with life and death running from your past actions or like you have to meet up with them or the fact that you have to cherish life even the author of the, these books the nicest thing they could say was it's a good movie, but it's not my books. It sounded like a very polite way of saying, hey, your movie did a very bad job, but at least it's your movie. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree that every single adaptation needs to be 100% faithful to its source material, but something tells me that this was, maybe the author is just too close to her own books but just sounds like this was just the wrong approach yeah it's weird i just it's interesting to just 
watch this movie and how it just unravels from how much it sets up and then just under delivers because it really ends on a, in a way that is different in a bad way compared to most Ghibli films. Not every Ghibli film needs to have a happy or a resolved ending. This doesn't really have so much an ending as much as like until next time, basically. And that's just frustrating to sit through. I don't know what it is about Goro Miyazaki and his inability to not write a compelling story. Like his best one is from up on Poppy Hill, but that's probably because Hayao Miyazaki wrote that story. Mm -hmm. Everything that just happens here just feels like nothing. There's nothing satisfactory about the story. And there are just moments where it adds these weird little comedy moments when it's trying to be this big, grand, epic story. And in better hands, or in a director that wasn't doing this for his first time, maybe it could have been great. Maybe Ghibli could have had a franchise on their hands to adapt. But who knows? Maybe some internal rules said, hey, we're not going to do sequels because sequels are bad and what have you. And yes, most sequels are pretty terrible to just middling. But with Ghibli, you could have found some good directors for something to fit the tone of Earthsea. Because even with this jumbled mess of a story, there are great moments. I loved the moment where Eren and Teru finally bond and she's singing that song, which is probably my favorite song, or one of my favorite songs, from the Ghibli discography. That moment was lovely. And it was probably the first time that I actually felt some sort of emotion watching this movie, where I'm kind of struggling to do that in other places. It's like when the moments work, they work. I love the downplayed moments of like Sparrowhawk, Aaron, and Tenar just relaxing after some farm work. And you get to see Ghibli's still great animation put so much character into their movements. But it's just supporting a story that doesn't work. Like those old ladies who are like, oh, who is that Tenar lady? She seems suspicious. They don't appear after their whole sequence again. I have no idea what that, why that scene was there at all. Like, this movie still looks great, and it still has its moments, but I don't know. It's just really disappointing. And then the whole thing with, like, Teru being a dragon, it's like, okay, what happened there? What happened with the dragons? Why were the dragons fighting? Not everything needs to be explained to me, but if you're going to introduce something into your movie, you have to follow through with it. That's one of the issues with this. And I'm struggling to put into words why we should maybe cut Goro a little bit of slack just because it seems like he was kind of thrown to the wolves during this production. But at the same time, we can't use the excuse of, oh, it was his directorial debut because I've seen many directorial debuts that are excellent. I think we do have to cut him some slack, though, because he was thrown in into an unwinnable situation. He wasn't a director. This was his first film. And from what I could find in terms of research, they 
pretty much rushed this into production more than any other because it's like, oh, we finally got the approval from the author. That means we can finally do it. So let's do it because it's going to take two or three or four years to make this movie. And it still looks great. I love the backgrounds and the environmental art. The character designs are still super appealing. Like, it's all there. It just doesn't have the heart that you would expect. And maybe if I wasn't going through these movies again with you, I would be like, eh, I just remember it being okay. But here it's like, man, I just, I don't know. Maybe I was in a not a great mood this morning or something when I rewatched it, but this is a disappointment. And I really can't understand, or I want to know why people like this movie, even though this has probably one of the messiest stories of a Ghibli film or just any animated film in general. I would like to hear from the defenders of this movie, not necessarily to invalidate your opinions because everyone is entitled to their own opinions. I just personally think, unfortunately, Goro Miyazaki, at the end of the day, just he just didn't have the sauce. And all these production troubles aside... It's unfortunate that this movie just kind of just kind of felt undercooked. Exactly. It's just a real grade A bummer. Even after all this complaining and criticizing, there's a better movie in there somewhere. If they probably just took out the dragon stuff and all the political stuff at the beginning, and I'm not saying take out the politics, that's impossible. Art in itself is political. Mm-hmm. But don't set up so much stuff at the beginning when there's nothing else that's going to follow up from those proceedings. We don't hear about the illnesses or the problems with the livestock or anything after that. As much as I love Timothy Dalton, Willem Dafoe, and Cheech Marin, I just thought the other three, I thought Mariska wasn't that great of a voice actor. Matt Levin and Blair Ristanio were not great. I thought their voice acting fell flat. Same. And I just don't think a different voice actor was going to save this dialogue. But, you know, if you still haven't seen this movie because it was considered for the from the time of, like, the late 2000s, early 2010s, one of the, well, quote-unquote, worst films of the Ghibli Library alongside Howl's Moving Castle, Palm Poco, I mean, give it a watch. I think there's something interesting to be had and a conversation that could lead to something truly fascinating when you watch a bad movie or an underwhelming movie and then just hash it out with a few friends and such. I would never tell someone not to watch a movie just because it's not great because you may walk away with a different opinion. But there are lessons learned from this movie and even doing some research on the production. But for now, we must spin the wheel of Ghibli. We only have three films left. We have one Isao Takahata film and two Miyazaki films left. We are almost there. We are going to catch up before The Boy and the Heron is released. Let's see what we get this time. Ha! Alrighty, here we go. We're going to talk about 
Hayao Miyazaki's follow-up after House Moving Castle, Ponyo, his unique take on The Little Mermaid, which everyone has a unique take on a Little Mermaid story, so... Of course. <laughs> I remember loving this one, and I still love this one. I bought a steelbook edition of this movie because I loved it so much, but I haven't watched it in a while, and it's not for the reasons Tales from Earthsea had that distinction, so... <laughs> Let's talk about part two of My Dad the Bounty Hunter. It took a little bit to get back to this one because we were busy with other podcast episodes and this summer anime season. But I am so happy to be back in this sci-fi world because I thought part two was very good. Yeah, part two does something really cool in that A, we get more focus on Tess and her backstory and also, we specifically get to see her home planet of Dolorom. And a couple months ago, about Kizazimoto and how we enjoyed seeing all that Afrofuturism, we get that in space, and it's pretty cool. The base of this second part is that Harry Hendrix, a.k.a. Sabo Brock, voiced by Laz Alonso, gets kidnapped by a bounty hunter named the Widowmaker, voiced perfectly by Ralph Ineson. And it is up to Tess, or Janira, voiced by Yvonne Orji, to go back out into space and find him with, of course, their two children, Lisa and Sean, and a very entertaining character, Lobby, who we get to see in the very first episode of this show, voiced by Patrick Harpin, one of the co-creators of the show. And they run into a new member of the conglomerate, who is named Pam, voiced by the always delightful Chelsea Peretti. Yes. And we get to, like you said, go back to Janira's home planet, where we encounter her parents, Emperor Odaman, voiced by Adewell Akinu Akbaje, who was Killer Croc in the Suicide Squad movie from 2016. But you all probably know him also from like the Bourne Identity films, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, Thor, Dark World. He's been in a lot of places. And we also meet Empress Gorilla, voiced by Janet Hubert. An old friend of Tess's named Aja, voiced by Thandu Thabeth. And another entertaining villain character or co-antagonist turned good guy Wakala voiced by the always on his game Keith David and it's been a while since we seen this show I think originally it was released back in February yep the CGI for this show is amazing I love dwarf animations visual look for this show and you truly do appreciate that they went the extra mile or were given the extra mile during the production pipeline to do texture work on the characters like they don't just look like flat barbie and ken dolls they have weight they are very textured 
some characters do have like a bit of shine to them, but that's because if we're talking about Blobby, for instance, they also were able to do lighting, which that's just amazing because I feel like sometimes some CGI shows are not given enough time to do shadow and lighting work with the CGI worlds they craft. So we end up with very flat looking worlds. Here, we're not. It feels atmospheric. You feel engrossed in either like the shady nightclub, the planet of Dolorom, or like back at home. And like they don't repeat any story beats here. And I like that because it's so easy to just, a lesser production would have just rehashed having Tess go into space and just do the same plot again. Have, like, bring back Jim Rash as Tim Fixer as a villain again. But no, he's dead. (laughs) Yeah, very dead. So instead we have Chelsea Peretti, who plays Pam, who really just shows that the conglomerate are very much space capitalists and also by the end of this second part, space colonialists. <laughs> and they continue that great dynamic drama between the family members. I love that the kids feel so realistic to the adults and the adults are also realistic. I loved that there was drama between Tess and Lisa, I loved the kind of teenage, like, I know more than you personality from Priya Ferguson, who plays Lisa, and how it clashes with Tess, who doesn't really quite know how to explain the situation to her kids. Well, part of the reason she's struggling is because the situation she's in is she's not really good at facing her decisions. So she spends a lot of, at least like the first half, dodging questions and sort of avoiding confrontation when she can exactly and of course the daughter thinks like wow you're a space princess why would you give that up and janira is like yeah let's see how you like not having control of your life control of your actions control of just anything let's just see how you like that it's just great to see a flawed family dynamic because sometimes Like, there are moments and times for shows and films to have, like, pretty good, happy, dynamic family chemistry. But for something like this, they continue the flawed chemistry from the first part to here, and it makes for very compelling characters. It helps that everyone in the family has their own agency. Like, Lisa and Sean, and especially... Lisa, they want to be more involved in the action. They don't want to just be left behind. No, and I get that. And I love that because, like I said back then, a lot of times with these shows, if they were made like in the 80s or something, the kids would take up two months' time. They'd be really annoying. And here, the writing just helps make all of these characters work well off another. I love seeing Glorlocks again. And even though he kind of cuts out for a majority of the nine episodes, which was really crumbly done because the first episode is like 40 minutes. I'm not sure why that was. Maybe just the pacing of that episode. 
kind of required it to be 44 minutes, I guess. Well, it just sounds like they were, Netflix was trying to cut out another episode so they wouldn't have to pay the creators. So they just double build the first two parts as one episode when they don't even do that for the second two parter at the end of this part. I just love how lived in this world is that they've crafted once again. I love seeing all the small minor characters. You hear Kevin Michael Richardson as clean Mike and then like Tim Meadows as principal Liam. I love the little flip on like, Oh, you think the kids are going to get told that, Hey, what you're doing is not okay. But with Sean, they're like, man, Sean is creative as heck. Like, this is great. And then they talk about Lisa being like, well, I'm better than everyone. I don't need to live here. Earth sucks. Like, they all played a part. They weren't just there to fill up space. Even like Godfrey as the public defender, Ja Bolu, for Terry was very funny. I loved his character. He was great because he was so bad at at his job that it just made everything worse. Like his character reminds me of someone that Richard Pryor would probably play if this was like from the 70s or 80s. Oh, I could totally see that. And then like with Chelsea Peretti's Pam, she's just as creepy. Well, she sounded as creepy as Jim Rash's, as Tim Fixer's, but Pam has a more sinister corporate entity to her whereas tim was very much more like sinister like i'm openly willing to kill and hurt people to get you to do this bounty job pam is more let's just throw money at you and we won't have to use force comes across very two-faced too like a lot of corporate executives I love that they also didn't hold back on some of the violence for this show. This show is plenty violent. Like, people probably do die. I mean, they probably, they won't show most of them. They'll probably, they have enough time and a rating to show maybe one or two. But I love that first moment where you think Pam is dead, where Tess rips out that inhibitor thing from her head. And you see her body just like, crunch up Mm. until you realize that she's also the same species as Tim Fixer as his like crocodile entity and even though it could be frustrating how the emperor and empress were well more so the emperor than the empress like were towards Terry you understand it. They were just worried parents. And then the first time they finally get a hint at something of like knowing where she was or where Nero was, you can understand their pain. They just yeah. wanted to know if their daughter was okay. Even though the emperor was definitely going behind the empress's back in terms of trying to get what the both of them wanted without actually ever talking to one another. It's a good parallel towards Terry and Tess and their relationship. I think that's what makes the Emperor and the Empress like very relatable is because that's kind of a normal thing that husband and wives will do. Like not always are they going to be on the same page. Some sometimes there is just a lack of communication. And not necessarily to like 
earth-shattering degrees, but like very mundane situations. But it's great that we kind of fully understand the motivations of each of these characters. And I also like that the Widowmaker, he's built up to be the big bad guy of the season. But I like that he's just like, hey man, I'm just a bounty hunter. I wasn't hired to kill Terry. I was just told to bring him here. He was very open and willing to help once he found out the situation at hand. That was a pretty nice twist. Blobby, I sent you a message about this, that Blobby was just a more tolerable and likable version of Bubble Bass from Spongebob. Like, down to his how he talked and his mannerisms. Like, he thought he was too cool for the room, even though he was just very pathetic. But he did grow to like the characters. And when he was absolutely given the freedom that he wanted, he still stuck around and was actually very useful. They could have easily just made him useless throughout the whole nine episodes, but they didn't. You know who else he reminds me of? Iago from mostly the Aladdin sequels, like Return of Jafar and then the series, where, you know, he kind of starts off with ulterior motives, but then just kind of warms up to our heroes. Very much like that, especially with Aladdin 2 was basically Iago's movie. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Like, since he was the only one to get a real major character arc from that story, but Man, that's been a while since I've seen that movie. Probably haven't seen it since the 90s. (laughs) Anyway, but back to My Dad the Bounty Hunter. It's just really cool that we, like, in a year where we also got Kazazimoto and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, that we got this really cool representation of Black families that we don't really see in a lot of media. Or we don't get to see a lot of it because of just how Hollywood unfortunately runs. And not only that, but like, it's a Black family, but in genre storytelling. It's cool to see representation like this, and it sucks that Netflix essentially buried this second part, because as we all know, they don't care about the actual art that they're making. They care that they have stuff for their streaming service even though they are taking off stuff from their streaming service and they are charging us more because it's apparently our fault that they hit the glass ceiling way too hard and are realizing, oh, the infinite growth thing ain't working. So we're going to make all the art that we make and all the audience members and subscribers suffer for it. (laughs) It is frustrating. Because this is a genuinely great show, probably still one of my favorite shows of the year so far. And this second part in, really encapsulates that. And it's got good action. It's got things for both adults and kids. It's funny. I loved the fact that they go to Bucky Quantos. And it's now like a health food place. And all the fake artery-clogging food are just holograms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so frustrating. But I kind of wonder if that would work. Like, you just you get the feeling of eating it without actually eating it. (laughs) If that was real, like, there would be so much outrage. I very much love this show, and I think the second part's great. I hope they have a third part because they put a little stinger teaser at the end with the whole portal thing opening up. And I feel like you can't end on that. Then again, this is Netflix, so you have to be careful. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I... 
while I agree, I would like to see a follow-up based, based on that stinger. But if this were the end of the series, I still think it's a pretty satisfying conclusion to the Hendrix's story. It's a shame that right now we're in this state of like post writer strike and we're still dealing with the actor strike, which again was of the fault of the executives at the top of these studios. So don't blame the actors. Don't blame the writers. Blame the executives who don't do anything that we could have had more of this show, but if they were only told they were given enough episodes because of the bad deals they were given at the time. Yeah, it's pretty satisfying. I just hope there's a little more that Netflix is hiding because I would absolutely want to see more or at least a third part to cap off everything. Yeah. I mean, that's really all I have to say. This was just great. I hated starting this episode with being very negative, but coming back to this one and seeing just like all the positivity come back through my spirit and body and thoughts. And of course, just being able to talk about anything with the amazing Keith David in it was like, yeah, we ended on a good note. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad we ended this episode on like probably the show that's in my top five of the year. Same. Yeah. My Dad the Bounty Hunter, if you have not seen the show yet, you should definitely check it out as soon as you can. Exactly. If you want some really pristine, high-quality representation and just fun storytelling and action, definitely give it a watch. But for next time, well, we're going to be taking a little break. We'll be trying to set up a Halloween episode before Halloween comes up. So we'll just have to see... You'll just have to wait and see what that is. So, But we'll definitely be talking about stuff like Castlevania Nocturne. Maybe Uzumaki if it comes out at that time. And Scavenger's Reign. And we got a lot of shows to talk about when we get back. So Halloween's going to be a fun time. But until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? Uh, you can find me on t- Twitter as long as that site's still on. I'm not going to be posting there as much anymore, but I will be on Blue Sky, same moniker as Cam's Eye View. I also have a website called uh, camseyeview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camseyeview. That's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on various social media at CaptainK42. You guys can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and that place at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on YouTube, Podchaser. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Renegade Pop Culture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need to escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. You will catch you guys later. Peace out.